Uh, good morning, all. Uh, my name is Steve Frederick. I'm the senior minister here. It's really wonderful to have you with us for the morning. Uh, it'd be very handy for both you and me if you had open before you uh, the second of the passages that Maria read for us. That's the one from 1 Timothy, chapter 5. It's on page 1193. Uh, and as we usually do have, there's a Q&R code on the back of the service outline with the talk outline there, uh, that if there are particular questions that you might have from today's passage, um, about, uh, particularly about how we reflect on those who lead us in the church, uh, then please do be ready to scan that, fill in any questions, uh, comments on the way through today. Uh, and if there are any, maybe we can see if we can come back and answer those later on this morning. Well, Australians are known for their reputedly, at least, bold egalitarian ethos, uh, for dismantling hierarchical structures of status and class, of treating everyone on a, a level and fair playing field. Whether or not it's a truth uh, is another thing, but we at least like to think of ourselves uh, in that way. And a whole bunch of people will go back even to our convict past to explain how it is that we became, as a nation, particularly egalitarian, particularly keen to treat everyone on a level playing field. After all, pretty much everyone arrived in this nation from European heritage on a level playing field, all kind of pretty most at their most humble status as convicts, uh, as prisoners. Uh, and perhaps we've got this myth about ourselves as being particularly fair-minded and egalitarian. But one of the questions we might ask ourselves is, are our egalitarian tendencies always expressing the most healthy kind of dynamic? Often our Aussie version of egalitarianism simply cuts down to size anyone who's shown more honour than the rest of us, what we call the tall poppy syndrome. If anyone gets more than their fair share of honour that makes them stick out too much, off with their heads, so to speak. Let's bring them back down to size, back to the pack. Yeah, there really is a very real possibility of public honour being misused and abused, taken too far. But is a cynical and dismissive mockery always the best or the only safeguard against that kind of elitism, against honouring others being taken too far? Uh, this vexed question of showing public honour was one that needed urgent consideration in the Ephesian churches that Timothy was an overseer in, that Paul was writing to Timothy. Uh, we've been looking at, uh, at the last several weeks, working our way through Paul's letter to Timothy, this younger man who was acting in a bishop-like way, overseeing the Ephesian churches and those who were in charge of them and those who were leading them. Uh, chapter 5 of the letter, we're going to look at chapter 5 this week and next week, grapples with this question of who within the community is worthy of honour, as well as how to respond to those who wrongly demand it or abuse it when they're shown honour, both financially and relationally speaking. Uh, and Paul leads uh, the chapter. We're only going to look at a small section this morning, mainly from um, verse 17 and onwards, but Paul leads this chapter, this discussion of showing honour, with some more general advice to Timothy that we're going to begin with about honouring others, 
Uh, have a look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And these two verses kind of lead off the whole chapter, really, and we'll come back to these verses next week as well. But I do want you to notice that these verses are not written to all Christian believers in general. These words of advice are specifically written to Timothy, who is to be the bishop and overseer of all the Ephesian churches. These are words that are written to the person who held the most senior status, you could say, in the churches in Ephesus. Have a look what Paul writes to Timothy. Chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. These aren't just general words of advice to the whole community. These are the words that are directed towards Timothy, who is the overseer of the whole church. This is how he is to interact in, with honour towards all those who make up the Ephesian churches. Uh, this title there, or speaking about older men or older women, is a term that somewhere else, in other places in the Scriptures, is often translated as elders or eldresses. It's, there's both a, a male and a female version of this word to speak of those who are generally elders within the church community. Now, it's not primarily here describing a formal or official church office, but an honorary status of distinction and leadership. It was a term that recognised seniority, integrity, uh, often a long history, a life lived of community service, whether or not it was specifically as an appointed or an elected role. Uh, I don't think there are any direct matches uh, between the way in which the scriptures speak of elders, overseers and deacons and so on and our use of wardens and parish council, but I think you could almost loosely attach wardens and uh, parish council with those who are more generally titled elders, those who hold a recognised and honorary status of leadership in the church community. And even as a bishop-type figure, as one exercising ordained authority over all the churches of Ephesus, as one who exercised the apostolic authority to correct and to rebuke others, Timothy was still to exercise his office in a manner that honoured his elders. He was to exhort his male elders, not harshly rebuking them. He was to relate to his female elders with the dignity and affection and respect that one might show one's own mother. Timothy's status as an overseer didn't negate the proper treatment with honour of those who were elders in the church community. Uh, but this wasn't just some unthinking culture of, you know, respect your elders that Paul was endorsing, that everyone who wasn't an older person needs to be, you know, seen but not heard, that kind of vibe. For not only was Timothy to fittingly honour his elders, I wonder if you noticed, he was also to honour and elevate those who were younger than him. He was to treat younger men not as upstarts to be belittled, but as brothers. That is, Timothy was to honour younger men above their station. And he was to treat younger women with the same integrity and honour 
that you treat your own sister as those who share equally in your own family honour. And quite frankly, that was an honour that was never extended to younger women in the ancient world. Barely ever even extended to the more elderly women either. Yes, there was an egalitarian vibe in the early Christian church, but it wasn't the Australian version of equality, where those who were rightly deserving of honour were cut down to size with everyone else. It was a version of egalitarianism where even those who had no recognisable claim for recognition were to be honoured above their social status and standing. That's what's getting it there with Paul's advice to Timothy or direction to Timothy about honouring those who were younger than him. Now Paul affirms the legitimacy of honouring others, particularly elders in the church, but he isn't blind to the to the way in which this kind of honouring of others can be abused, the way in which a claim to honour can go sideways very, very quickly when it's not thought of correctly. There are two specific categories of elder, congregation member or church member, whose honour are addressed in chapter 5. We see in today we're going to be looking at verse 17 and following, where the example of overseers, the teachers and preachers are being addressed. But next week, Paul will also address this category of the older, the elder widow, who is also to be officially recognised and honoured. We'll come back to speaking about those widows next week. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 17, which is where we're going to focus in on a little bit for this morning. Verse 17 of chapter 5, where he addresses this category of elder uh, who oversees and teaches and preaches. Verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Not only is there legitimacy in honouring one's elders, just generally speaking, says Paul, but there are some elders who are worthy of double honour, whatever on earth that means. Those, Paul says, who direct the affairs of the church, that is, those whose work is preaching and teaching. Uh, In reading this passage, there are some who suggest that Paul is speaking here about two categories of leading elders. Uh, Those elders who are non-teaching elders and other elders who are teaching elders, as if you could divide them into two kinds of categories. And yet, interestingly, Paul never describes a class of non-teaching leaders or pastors in the early churches. In fact, the leading elder or overseer, as Paul terms them back in chapter 3, must, Paul says, be able to teach. To pastor or to shepherd God's flock, because that's what pastor means, it just means to shepherd, is to lead by teaching and preaching. That's the mode in which church leaders are to lead, through their teaching and preaching. And in verse 17, Paul is saying that those elders and overseers who lead well, namely those overseers and elders who teach and preach well, are worthy of double honour, of some particular honour and recognition. I've given you a, a bunch of extra Bible verses that you might want to look up under this point on your service sheets. The word that's translated here as especially can be equally translated as particularly or namely, that is. 
And Paul repeatedly uses this word throughout his letters to Timothy and Titus to clarify, to narrow down, to make more specific who exactly he's speaking about. You can follow up those verses uh, later if you'd like. Uh, There's also more detail in that flyer about church leadership that I've printed and it's, we've got more copies by the, the, the church door if you want to take that home and read through it later. But, but what, what is this double honour? What shape might honouring an overseer, a teaching and preaching elder, what shape might that actually take? What might it look like? What honour are they worthy of that somehow exceeds the honour that we might just show generally to those who are our elders? Verse 18 indicates at least one aspect of what this double honour might include. Have a look at me, verse 18. Uh, In speaking about honouring those whose work is preaching and teaching, Paul says in verse 18, for the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Here, Paul is referring back to uh, a slide, uh, a couple of references in the Old Testament uh, that uh, are variously scattered throughout the Old Testament scriptures uh, that speak of honouring those who do work. Uh, The image that's used here is that of an ox who does the hard work uh, of treading out the grain, that is, separating out the external husks from the inner kernel of grain. Uh, The cattle would basically just walk around in a circle on top of the grain that had been harvested and thrown into the middle of things. Uh, And as the oxen walked around on top of the grain, it would break out the kernel, the, the husk and the kernel of the grain, so that it could be used for food, for baking and so on. And the ox is rightly to be sustained, the Old Testament scripture said, from the work that they're performing in order to sustain others, to, to sustain their masters. And Paul says, likewise with overseers, those elders who sustain God's people in their teaching and their preaching. And this is something that our churches do spectacularly well. Uh, we have a parish council who was uh, elected just a few weeks ago, uh, who sets the policies for our church for the financial support of those who are pastoral staff here at Summer Hill Church. There's uh, guidance given by the Diocese of the Anglican Church in Sydney, but the Parish Council sets the policy for how Lauren and I specifically are remunerated and cared for. That's really fitting. And then the wardens are those who are being set aside to execute the policy that Parish Council sets. They're the ones who actually handle the money who organise it getting passed on to Lauren myself and any other pastoral and teaching staff. And it's right and fitting that it's done in that kind of way, that we don't have any direct oversight of it ourselves. You as a church, and particularly those who are like the general elders, who are generally held in honour and esteem and trust, they oversee how that gets played out. But this honour to be shown to overseers and other pastoral teaching staff as well is certainly not exclusively couched in financial terms. I'm going to skip out of our passage in 1 Timothy to have a look at uh, a verse from Hebrews chapter 13 uh, that's up there on the screen for you. The writer of Hebrews, right towards the end of of his work, uh, gives this exhortation. 
have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Submit to their authority, the writer of Hebrews says. Exactly what kind of authority is it that the writer of Hebrews is urging believers to submit to here? What is the sphere? What is the nature of, what is the scope of authority that's being referred to? Now, Hebrews, as well as Paul's writings to Timothy and to Titus, speaks of church leaders as those who keep watch over God's flock, ensuring that they're not devoured by false teaching and led astray by false teaching. Pastors is just a word that means to be shepherds of God's flock, to be overseers, to be watching over God's flock, to lead the church by teaching the truths of faith, not by wielding some indiscriminate or arbitrary directive control over other people's lives. There's a quite a distinct character to the way in which overseers are to lead through their preaching and teaching. And it's that preaching and teaching that's to be submitted to. An overseer's authority is particularly a teaching authority, not a generalised leadership rank in all things relating to church life. Even so, the Scriptures do identify overseers as leading in teaching and as something that needs to be submitted to. God's flock are called to entrust themselves to the overseer's teaching in a way that's not true for the speech of others in the church community. Now, this doesn't mean that only overseers should address and speak to the gathered church community, but while other people in church community will rightly prophesy and exhort and encourage and pray and sing and even teach in many and varied other kinds of ways, overseers alone will be held to account by God for overseeing and guiding the spiritual health of the church community through their public authoritative teaching. And yet, just because there is a legitimacy to the honour that overseers are due, absolutely does not mean that they are due honour without limits. In fact, often the more honour that someone is shown, the more specific we'll likely need to be about the limits of such honour. And that's what Paul actually spends most of his time on in the verses that follow this morning. As James also wrote, those who teach are to be judged with greater strictness than others. And Paul spells out exactly how that's to operate in the following verses. Glance with me to verse 19. Verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. It's not only before God on the last day that teachers should expect to be held to account for how they lead. 
those who preach and teach, are authorised to make public judgments concerning the truths of the Christian faith and the gospel message, the ultimate goal of which is leading towards love being expressed within the church community. But wherever an overseer's teaching or behaviour instead begins to promote their own interests, the public honour that they're due is never to shield them from public accountability. And yet it does reference here, doesn't it, that this public accountability is to be handled with care. Only those accusations that are established by two or three witnesses should Timothy proceed to take action upon. What kind of concern lies behind a warning like that about two or three witnesses? Isn't the expectation of two or three witnesses a pretty high bar to assume in some situations? Mightn't some of the most grievous sins against vulnerable people, even within the church community, be perpetrated outside of or hidden from public view, where there aren't a whole stack of eyewitnesses there to see? Uh, Paul here, by referencing two or three witnesses, is quoting a general maxim that's expressed on multiple occasions throughout the Scriptures. Uh, One of the first occasions is back in Deuteronomy 17, if you want to go back and have a look at that on another another occasion, where there is a warning to take care to avoid acting on malicious accusations. But both Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, I've got these references on your sheet, both Jesus in Matthew 18 and the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians apply this general principle in multiple and varying ways that don't actually require two or three eyewitnesses before taking action. Rather, the two or three church members that are mentioned here are two or three church members who agree that the matter really warrants being taken seriously and investigated and publicly being addressed. Uh, Both in 2 Corinthians and in Matthew 18, there's no reference that they must be eyewitnesses to the exact occasion in which the wrong happened, but just that there must be a group of people who agree that it is a very serious matter that needs to be addressed publicly. Uh, In Sydney, in Anglican churches in Sydney, we have something that was once called the PSU, Professional Standards Unit. Now it's described as the Office of the Director of Safe Ministry. Uh, The details of this particular body will be put up on the screens after the service that is especially appointed to make sure that there are those who have experience and specialist insight into how, how to go about fielding the most complicated and difficult of accusations against those who oversee church communities, especially in situations that are beyond the usual expertise or impartiality of regular church members. There might be occasions in which most people in church are simply too close to the church leader or overseer to go to and to enlist their help in making an accusation. The office of the director of safe ministry is there in those kind of situations to act as that extra two or three witness, those extra people who can establish that this really is a matter that needs to be dealt with seriously and publicly. The liabilities of ignoring an overseer's sin are simply too grievous to simply default to protecting the honour of one's own church elders. 
in these kind of situations. Far too often, these matters are dealt with in a hush-hush and sweep under the carpet way. Your expectation is that that shouldn't be the case. Where there's grievous ongoing sin, it should be dealt with openly and with due acknowledgement. Uh, Paul goes on in the verses that follow to outline three liabilities of honouring sinning leaders. Uh, The three dangers or liabilities that can come along with not taking seriously addressing the sin of those who oversee the church community. Uh, The first issue is at stake has already been highlighted for us in verse 20. A public response, not simply a private response, is critical for communicating that a leader's sin won't be enabled within the church community. If a church's response to a teacher's sin is to simply make exceptions, then the integrity of the entire community will likely begin to unravel. Not only undermining and compromising the integrity of the overseer's own public teaching ministry, but also emboldening others, other people in the church community in their sin as well, if they see it's just going to be swept under the carpet and not genuinely addressed. But even more seriously, to continue showing a church overseer or leader honour out of favouritism or partiality is an offence against God himself. Have a look with me at verses 21 and following. Verse 21 and following. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Uh, In his oversight of the Ephesian church leaders, Timothy is to remember that God himself, that Christ Jesus the judge, that his appointed angels are all witnesses to the sins of these leaders, whether these sins are ever acknowledged or exposed publicly or not. If Timothy were to simply turn a blind eye to the sins of these overseers, if Timothy were even just to be carelessly quick or pragmatic in his appointing of church overseers who turn out down the track to be unworthy then he himself will in some sense be complicit in their sins against the church who is under their care. Timothy would shoulder some of the responsibility, he would bear some of the guilt for the harm that such leaders would ultimately cause the church. Was it perhaps a stress of bearing such a responsibility that had resulted in Timothy's gut problems that are unexpectedly mentioned there for us in verse 23 or perhaps Paul is just gently noting that a little bit of self-care by Timothy is a very different matter than indulging in the kind of self-serving lifestyles that the Ephesian church leaders were getting involved in. 
Either way, what Timothy was faced with overseeing, how he was faced with ensuring the proper treatment and accountability of these church leaders was not an easy thing to shoulder or a burden to bear. That's why we particularly pray regularly for those who are our bishops and our leaders, particularly Michael Stead, who is our bishop in this area of Sydney. Either way, Timothy is to be exceedingly cautious in entrusting the role of an overseer to any elder. People's sins are not always easy to name, let alone even recognise on some occasions. Uh, Have a look with me at the closing words that Paul gives to Timothy in verse 24. Paul says, The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. While some people's sins might disqualify them from church leadership right from the outset, right up front, even before they get to the point of being considered for a position as an overseer, other people's sins are not always so easily noticed or identified or recognised. Sometimes the patterns of behaviour that might recommend someone to leadership in their 20s, for example, are later revealed to be part of a more concerning and ultimately damaging pattern of behaviour if it was ever let loose on a church community. Timothy is told by Paul to take care, to exercise caution, to make sure that he doesn't share in the guilt of others' sins, to make sure that the church flock isn't exposed and made vulnerable to such sins either. Uh, Last week, at the end of our passage, one of the folk from church, I'm not sure who it was, it was anonymous, submitted this question uh, that we didn't get to discuss last week. The question was this, uh, does the Bible distinguish between the formal ministry of a paid minister versus the ministry of a lay person? And the answer to that question, I think, is yes. Very definitely it does in some of the most sobering and stark terms. Though the focus in the Scriptures is not so much whether the worker is paid or unpaid, whether the ministry is formal or informal, It's more about what kind of authority has been entrusted into that worker's care. The church is called to submit to the teaching leadership, especially of those who have been appointed as overseers, even though their leadership is not absolute. And that's true of an overseer in a way that it isn't relevant in the same way for the teaching of others within the church community. And those overseers, we're told, are to be held to account for the safety of God's flock, particularly for safety from false teaching, ensuring that the focus is upon a faith that promotes, that leads to love. Those overseers are accountable to God and to bishops in a way that no other person exercising ministry in the church community is quite accountable in the same kind of way, with the same kind of gravity. And the preaching, teaching leadership of an overseer is there to enable others in the church community to perform their own public ministry of the word, 
for the building of God's flock, whether that be done in prophesying or exhorting, in warning, encouragement, in prayer, in song, or in other forms of teaching as well. As you head off from this morning, I do want you to be assured that this really is relevant for how we function together as a church community as well. Those who exercise pastoral oversight in this church community are overseen by Bishop Michael Stead. And if our public teaching or behaviour needs to be held to account, it is Michael's duty to ensure that that happens openly and truthfully. And even where you might not be confident in going straight to a bishop or enlisting even the help of the wardens or the parish council as part of our church community, if such a situation was to ever occur, there is what was formerly the PSU or the Office of the Director of Safe Ministry who are there to ensure that that requirement of two or three witnesses, of an agreed awareness of the seriousness of some misbehaviour needs to take place can be affirmed and assured for you, even when you don't feel you can reach out to people who are immediately part of this church community. Please do continue to pray for, for me particularly, for Michael Stead as he oversees not only me but many others in our region, for Lauren as well as she seeks to be honourable in the way in which she leads and teaches and oversees ministry here at Summerhill Church. But friends, also continue to pray for one another. Pray for those church members who have been made vulnerable to those who have led in service only to themselves, to their own appetites and passions. Paul has got some more serious warnings against them yet to come in this letter. Uh, And it is no small thing to carry that kind of burden, to have harmed God's precious people in the way in which leadership is exercised. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Dearest Father, we bring before you your precious people, your flock, over whom the Lord Jesus himself serves as the chief shepherd. Father, care for your people, protecting them not only from those who would seek to muddy the wonderful truths of the gospel from outside the church. Also, Father, we ask that you would protect your flock from those leaders who have begun to lead in a way that serves only themselves. Father, please ensure that all those who oversee your church are held to account for the good and the health of your precious people and for the honour of your holy name. And Father, where there has been injustice that perhaps some of us are here aware of, please assure us that all that, gets, that all that takes place in the church is done under your oversight, under the oversight of the Lord Jesus and your elect angels. And no wrongdoing will ever be left undealt with or unaddressed. 
Father, keep us holy and godly for your honour and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, after the service, as I'd mentioned earlier, those details for the uh, Office um, of Protection and Safe Ministry will pop up on the screen. I'd encourage you to take a photo of it with your phone or even enter in the details into your contact book. Maybe you won't ever need it for yourself, but maybe there'll be a time in which you need to share those details for someone else. Uh, and it's good to have it on hand in case you do. If there are any questions or points of clarity that you'd like to ask, please feel free to do that via the QR code as well.